Good morning. Oh, thanks, man. Well, that's pulpit as a bottle holder. Well, it's great to be here. Uh, appreciate the opportunity to share. Let me just give you a quick intro, a little more uh, about myself before we dive in, and I'll pray. Um, I'll be 55 this year. Uh, a lot of life changes going on. Um, I have five children. Uh, my oldest will be 29 this summer, and our youngest are twins. Uh, and then I have a bunch in between. Uh, I'm the husband of one wife, been married for over 30 years now. Uh, we've lived uh, in three countries, four states. Uh, we've lived in 17 houses. Uh, we've church planted in six different church plants and now uh, lead a, a missions ministry. And so Jeff asked me to touch on this this topic. I think I'm making a lot of noise here because there's there's something very... Uh, applicable to my life uh, with this theme. And so I hope we can dive in and get a little bit of understanding from God's Word of how you navigate this because we're all there. At different uh, points in our lives, we're all there. And so it's important for us to understand what that looks like, having humility when, when the mission changes, when the assignment changes. So let's pray together. Father God, we just thank you for an opportunity this morning to come together. We're thankful for uh, the health and the strength you've given to us to to get out of bed and walk forward. Uh, God, in your sovereignty, giving us another day to, to honor and glorify you. I pray, Lord, as we uh, share this time together this morning, that you would open up our hearts to put aside the worries and the cares of this world and to let your spirit move and to confront us and to teach us. God, we desire to be men of God that represent the truth of the gospel in every aspect of our lives. God, I pray that you would help us to do that today. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So one of the, uh, if you look at our lives and, and go through what is important to us and look at our values, uh, we would probably agree on that two of the greatest values that we hold as American men are self-preservation, self-preservation, and the other one would be autonomy or self-dependence, okay? We would look at ourselves and say it's a desire that we preserve ourselves, that we preserve what we have, who we are, and that we really take care of ourselves well. And the culture has pushed us in that, in that direction. So it's, it's given us uh, thoughts of be all you can be. You can do this if you just work harder. Uh, my dad was a proponent of this. If we just dream big and push hard, you can get to where you want to go. And so it's created in us this idea of autonomy and, and self-preservation. Uh, as a young man, I grew up, uh, was raised in the Catholic Church until I was about 14 years old. My parents came to Christ later in life. Uh, I can remember the day my dad sat me down and explained to me that there was a big change on the horizon. I had seen what the gospel had done in their lives. I had seen the changes that took place. Uh, they were, for most part, good changes. Uh, the, the, the changes in my dad's life were good changes. But I was raised in one place, knew one location, a small town in South uh, New Hampshire, about 45 minutes outside of Boston. Uh, I was raised there, knew the house all my life, and my dad sat in front of me and said, hey Cam, uh, God is changing our assignment. And my dad was the president of a company, we lived in a nice house, drove some nice cars, lived a comfortable life. And in just that short conversation, not understanding the complexity of it all, but he shared with me that God was making a shift and that I would also be going with that shift. That was the first moment that I had begun to understand and grasp that when you enter the kingdom, things dramatically change. Not just from the inside out, 
But God begins to move you and, and require things of you that sometimes are very uncomfortable from the outside in. They begin to seem a little bit uh, insurmountable. Changes that we don't, wanna, we, want, we don't wanna face. So when Jeff asked me to think this through and talk with you about really the, the idea of humility when our mission changes, I begin to think through the, the, the journey that God has put me on from a young age until now. And the idea that kingdom humility is a posture before God, recognizing his ownership and leadership over our lives, our vocation, our occupations, yielding our plans, our strategies, our dreams, and our desires. And in all of that, the great amount of tension that that creates. That when we are, we are born again, we are born again into a, a kingdom. We are taken out of the kingdom of sin and death, and we are placed in the reality of a new kingdom. And the reality of this new kingdom is a kingdom that has one ruler. One ruler, ruler that desires, desires to, to rule over my life and bring blessing to me, but what re, he requires from me is obedience and submission. Now, through all those changes, the three countries, the four states, the 17 houses, the six church plants, those weren't easy. That struggle, that tension is very real in each one of our lives. Now, you're in different spots, vocationally, occupationally. You're in different spots with your age, with what you're facing, whether you're 17 or you're 70. What doesn't change is our position in the kingdom and the humility that it requires for us to be able to respond effectively to God because change is taking place all the time and we can't escape it. And if we resist it, then what we find ourselves is in a place of no peace, no power, and the church is crippled. Let's uh, turn in our Bibles to uh, 1 Corinthians. Let me give you a little backdrop about what I'm going to talk about this morning because one of the, one of the uh, journeys that I've been on with Paul, the Apostle Paul, is trying to understand my struggle with the change, my struggle with what would seem to be an unstable life, what would, it would seem to be uh, no, no good place to put your feet, that things are always shifting, that the ground is always moving. And I, can, I have tried to find stability. I've tried to find a place where I can stand and put a stake down and call it home. And, and it just doesn't work. It hasn't worked at all. And I've looked at the life of Paul, and I can identify with Paul in many ways because his assignments just were always morphing. From the very beginning, we find his life in the book of Acts morphing into something. His, his assignment was always changing. We find in the, in the book of Acts in chapter 11 that God used forced immigration, forced immigration to disperse the church and carry the gospel out. And in that forced immigration, we begin to read about somebody called Saul. We begin to see that one of the first churches that, were, that was started out of this forced immigration, church in Antioch, was a church that needed help. And one of the helpers that would come to, to assist this church was a teacher called Saul. And this teacher would come and he would train and stay there for over a year and he would equip. And this once Pharisee, this once murderer, now as a trainer and a teacher, then we find shortly after that, is now selected in, in Acts chapter 13 to shift his assignment now and to become a church planter, a missionary. And we read through these pages and go, man, that must have been super easy for Paul, right? Why wouldn't he just have not said, okay, God, I'm here, just take me, do what you want with me. 
And we forget to, to realize that he was a man. He was bivocational. He was bivocational. In many of his ministry opportunities, he was struggling with how to feed himself, how to take care of himself. We don't have reference to others, but we can imagine how that took place with his other family members and do ministry effectively in an environment that was very difficult and very hostile. We find in, in chapter 13 that there's a shift taking place and that now he's sent out. And then we find closely after that that what marks a, a shift in his ministry and his assignment is even a name change. He goes from Saul to Paul. And we see this in Scripture like it's no big deal. But all of a sudden he's facing this tremendous assignment shift away from the Jews into the Gentiles. And Saul becomes Paul. And he begins to navigate and walk hundreds of miles and sleep on the ground and face difficulty and try to run a small business and take care of himself in an environment that always wants to beat him down and destroy him. And as an American, we say, well, man, that's, that's really not wise because financially, every, every move you make, every change you make, you lose money. It's better to stay in one place and preserve what you've got. Because in the long run, man, when you get to be 65, well, now it's like 67, 70, you'll have something to take care of you. And Paul just flies in the face of that in such a way that we just fly over his life and think, there ain't no way that that's for me. There's no way that that's prescriptive, that that's telling me that my life is called to the same standard as Paul's. Yet, I don't have time this morning to go through how Paul required all of those who he stood next to, sat next to, slept next to, ate next to, to do the same as he did. He called them and he said, look, I'm a model. Do as I'm doing. He had such high credibility. So we find later in Acts chapter 18, in his second missionary journey, he founds a church. He's part of a, a church planting effort and the church in Corinth is born. And this church plant takes off and in that process, another figure enters into Paul's life, and that's this fashionable, eloquent preacher that's so different than Paul, Apollos. Paul is this kind of like this beaten down guy with ripped clothing, and his sandals are not really good shape. And this other guy is this eloquent speaker, kind of the opposite of Paul. And he comes into his life, and so there's this opportunity for conflict, for competition. But Paul goes forward, breaks ground, and Apollos comes behind and he waters and he cultivates and he helps. And these guys, even though they don't walk side by side, they work together. And there's no competition. You can go to, the, to Titus and see that Paul makes reference in Titus for the church to take care of Apollos, to help him out. There's no competition. There's an understanding that, hey, assignments change. People are working together as their assignments change because God is in charge of this humbly come together and work together. It's, it's an amazing thing for somebody who's worked on multiple teams, struggled with multiple mission organizations, struggled within my own family with personal conflicts in the gospel to see the life of Paul and see how these guys worked in so many others. It's an amazing thing. So in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, we all know this chapter because it's very, very pertinent to where we're at in church. You have a church that, again, was planted by Paul, and news comes to Paul. News comes to Paul that, hey, your church plant's in trouble. And as a, as a person who's been involved in church planting, 
I've had this happen where you think you've done a good job and then you get news that, oh man, there's something going wrong. You didn't do as well as you thought. And Satan has come in and he's dividing, he's destroying, he's discouraging. And so you can imagine as a church planter and Paul got the news that there was division in this church. One of the interesting things here that, that Paul does in the first few chapters of of 1 Corinthians, is he begins to lay out a modus operandi for his own life. He kind of gives a philosophy of ministry in life. Now, some of you uh, are vocationally like myself. Your vocation is your occupation. Our vocation is our calling to ministry, and we are called to, to live our occupation through our vocation. Some of you have an occupation. You work Secular jobs, if you would like to use that term, but you have a vocational call. We see in the life of Paul right here that he balanced back and forth between his vocation and his occupation in a very good way, taking care of himself. But it created tension. And as he gives us this modus operandi, this philosophy of ministry about humility in life because of change, because of new assignments, we can look at it from both perspectives. Somebody whose occupation facilitates their vocation in church and in ministry and in life, or at least it should. And some of us who are vocationally doing the same thing to provide our occupation. We both can come at this and see something very special here. So Paul, in the, in the first couple chapters, lays the groundwork. He takes the Corinthians back and says, you know, where we need to start, we need to go back to, to what is the foundation, what's your north. Because in life, you're going to get smacked around. You're going to get hit. You're going to get, you're going to get bothered. It's kind of like driving. I forgot how terrible the roads were in Michigan. It's, it's ridiculous. I, I live in Delaware right now, another state that I've lived in. You probably don't even know where Delaware is. You think it's in New England. It's not in New England. And the roads are very simple. There, there's like very little highway in Delaware because it's such a small state. But they do a very good job of keeping their roads. So there's not a real great need of alignments. Come to Michigan, I'm like, ah, oh, yep, six months, you need to get your tires, you get your chassis and your tires aligned again because there's so many hits. And Paul says, he goes back in the first two chapters of 1 Corinthians and he and reminds the, the, the church members, hey, our north, our north is the gospel. Our north is the gospel. Keep that in, in mind every single day. Preach that to yourself because it is what will keep your tires in line with your chassis. And when you begin to recognize that it's not working, you can tell because your tires get worn out, right? Your soul begins to cry out. Your, your emotions begin to flare. Your, your will begins to deviate. Your thoughts, your mind begins to think other things. And you can tell that the tires are getting worn out. I'm not aligned. I need to realign myself with the gospel. And so Paul says, hey, when you struggle and you begin to go back to that autonomy, like you think it's all about you, you go back to that self-dependence and you think you just need to work harder and do more and provide more, you need the gospel again because the gospel will remind you who you are and who he is. It'll put you back in your place. And so he, he goes and he, he repeats to them. And if you look at 1 Corinthians 1.18, a very famous verse. For the, for, the word, for, the world of the cross is, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. The power of God is saving us every day from ourselves. 
It's moving us every single day away from who we are and more into who Christ is. And so Paul says, first of all, if you want to react humbly because you're going to face an amazing amount of change. There's going to be moments when you don't know where your footing should be. Life is going to be unstable. Go back to the gospel. And the gospel will give you north. And you can continue to walk forward because you are a pilgrim. I stood in, in a, an emergency room. Man, it's been 17 years. I can share multiple stories. Uh, some of you might not have as many as I do, but for some reason God is, probably because I'm so hard, has given me many stories. I stood in the emergency room with my wife, and some of you know the story. Uh, my wife was pregnant. At that point in time, she was 26 weeks pregnant. And she woke me up and said, my water broke. And she was pregnant with twins at 26 weeks. And I can remember we stood in the emergency room and the nurse came out into the hallway and we were on furlough. I had given my life dedicated to church planting in Ecuador. I went to school in Ecuador, my junior year in college, 1990 and 91. I'd moved my family there. We had church planted in southern Ecuador. My life was there. My purpose was there. And this nurse came out and she said, and she grabbed my arm and she said, prepare yourself. Your life's about to change. I'm just like, what, what are you, I don't even know you. What are you, what are you saying? Your, your wife is about to go into labor and, and she's premature. And we're injecting her right now with steroids to help the baby's lungs, but we don't know what will happen. Within 24 hours, uh, the twins were born. They were a pound, 12 ounces apiece. And it started this massive wrestling match with God. This massive wrestling match with God every single day trying to understand, wait, I'm supposed to be there, not here. My life is there, not here. What are you doing? What are you doing? And it began this process of, of finding north, of understanding what it means to again realign myself in the kingdom turning over my dreams, my desires, my plans, my strategies. And that stinks. Because the, the American male, that's all I've got. That's my whole identity. I was taught that from a young age. I have to prove that I'm worth it. I have to show. And as a missionary, hey, there's no other vocation that's worse at that. Because you're constantly having to prove to other people that you're worthy of their money, their support. You have to go out and find that support so you're always self-promoting and you begin to believe that stuff. And God at this moment had me in a position where it was all about, no, 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 you don't understand. I could spend the next two hours explaining the, the struggles and the arguments that I had with God. But the gospel became the only place I could find north and truly understand what it meant to what Paul says in verse 18, to the fact of being saved, that God was saving me, that I had come to Christ, but I didn't understand that he was saving me from myself. And he was using the experiences of life, the opportunities of life all around me. In this moment, my wife in crisis, and revealing in my heart, that my dreams, my desires, my strategies were primary and he was secondary. And at that moment, they were over my wife because I was like, okay, when can we get these two babies ready to go 
to Ecuador. And the doctor would look at me and say, brother, I don't even know if they're going to survive till tomorrow. And if they do, they're probably going to be severely handicapped. That was a conversation I had going into the delivery room, and the doctor turned to me and said, hey, I want you to know that you're about to walk in and see these babies. Don't, don't be afraid. It's not going to look good. But I can tell you this, that every day they live is a greater percent that they will live longer. But I can tell you one thing, they're probably going to be disabled, so prepare yourself. What? God, what? So in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul lays the foundation of the gospel. And then he goes into this, this amazing explanation of his modus operandi in life and ministry. And we look at this and we think it's about division, which it is. But God, but God through Paul, gives us a, a window of opportunity to see something that, for me, has been transformational. It's been transformational. First, the gospel, my north. Go back to that every single day, Cam, because if you don't, you will become misaligned and you will wear your tires out. Go back to the gospel because you're being saved in it every single day. Philippians chapter 2, work out your salvation. Okay, I get that. And then Paul gives this, this portion and he lays out some amazing principles on top of the gospel. So he goes in the first four verses and he confronts the church. Immature, you're, you're beginning to follow different people, and he brings up this, this guy, right? Apollos. He brings up himself because apparently there's some competition in the minds of the people. Paul's like, you got that all wrong. There's no competition here. And then he goes into verse 5. What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are, are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. So Paul comes at them quickly. And in verse 5 he says, What then is Apollos, what is Paul? Servants through whom you believed. I realized really quickly that the first thing that I need to realize on top of the gospel during these times, and again, I've had multiple moments like this, when you begin to think, I, I, God, uh, don't change my assignment. Don't change what I'm doing. I'm not willing to make that shift. I want to stay where I'm at. I want to fulfill my plans and my strategies. Paul says here that, he grasped, along with Apollos, that they were nothing more than servants. Now, the implications of that, we hear about this all the time. We, I, I lead a, a missions ministry called Servant Leaders International. The idea of being a servant, right? The implications of that are deep and profound and probably not worked out to the fullest that, that it could be in each of our lives. The idea that I am humbly accepting my limitations underneath the kingship, the lordship of one who is my eternal boss. And I begin to understand that, okay, if he's my boss and he, he determines my position in the kingdom, he rules and orders my life. He is the one who practically plays out and overcomes my will, my plans, my desires. I place all of them at his feet underneath his leadership. 
So that means I, I relatively don't have plans, desires, and strategies. Now, as somebody who loves strategic thinking and planning, who has to have a plan to move forward, who wants clarity and not confusion, that's a very disturbing thought. And when we go to churches and present ministry as missionaries, what do you like to see? Oh, a convictional, confidence-driven individual who says, this is what we're going to do, and we're inviting you to get on board with us. And what I see from Paul, it's kind of like, no, you're humbly accepting that your position as a servant, and sometimes a revelation of what that means and looks like isn't clear, and it's developing. But if I stand before a church and I say, hey, I'm not really sure what I'm going to do in Ecuador. God's called us to go there. He's going to reveal that to me a little by little, and, and we're more than willing to be obedient to that. You're going to go, there ain't no way we're, we're giving that guy money. And as Paul went from place to place, he was constantly recognizing and reminding himself that Jesus is the leader here. Like, he's my boss. I consult with him to know the changes that I make and the places that I go. And we, we've heard this, we've sung the songs about this, but we, we actively protect our lives from the implications of that. I'm 50, I'll be 55 this year. And I don't know how many of you guys are in, in my boat, but my testosterone is crashing. My passions are changing. My outlook on life is, wow, it, it, it's weird. And there's a need to reinvent myself. And I've, have to, I've had to reinvent myself with each assignment, but I find myself tired. <laughs> like, Lord, I, I don't know if I can reinvent myself one more time. And somebody reminded me the other day that, hey, brother, you're not supposed to reinvent yourself. He's in charge of that. If you understand the gospel is your north and, and you hold on to that with all you have, and you recognize that he's your leader, he's your boss, you can turn to him and you can trust his guidance in your life. You can let him reinvent you. And Paul goes on in, in verse 5. What then, what then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. I read that verse and I thought, wait a minute. In Spanish, asignación o tarea. Your, 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 your assignment or your, your work that you will do. Could it be that specific? That God was really... That sovereign, that involved, that he assigns us, that he moves us so specifically, that his desire is that within the paradigm of, of his kingdom, that he moves me, that when I, I obey, I can, I can react to his specific, particular work in my life. Cam Wolford, is that possible? I'm not the Apostle Paul. But that's what Paul is saying here, that he's, he's moving, he's equipping, that he has a providential plan that he is working out, and he has assignments for me. And those assignments can change. We have many times celebrated those who, who don't change assignments, right? Faithfulness is our highest, our highest value, and we say faithfulness means that you stay in one place for as long as possible. I'm not discounting that. I'm not discounting some of you who've been in one place for a long time. But I would challenge you if, if your posture was incorrect and you stayed in one place because you resisted the moving of God. God's 
kingdom is a kingdom of risk. Years ago, I went to the doctor and uh, I had a nodule on the back of my, my neck and I was in Costa Rica church planting and I said, you know, I don't, I don't know what's going on here. What, what is this? And he said, I'm going to run a, a, a gambit of tests on you and I'm going to find out what's wrong with you. And, and so he ran one for toxoplasma. And, and if you're familiar with toxoplasma, it's a parasite that you normally you hear about women getting that you're, when, when your wife got pregnant, she can't be around a cat litter box because toxoplasma, you find it in a cat litter's box. And what happens is that a cat eats a mouse or a rat, and the, and the, uh, the cat produces the process that when it comes out of the cat, it provides a life cycle to this parasite. And if you're in a cat litter box and you breathe it, you can get the parasite. So the test came back, and he said, hey, you, you have toxoplasma. I'm like, what? what? He said, where have, you, uh, where have you lived? I said, oh, man, I've lived in Mexico. I've lived in Ecuador. He said, oh, it's probably a cat walked across your food. Oh, that's comforting. So I did some research on toxoplasma, and toxoplasma is very interesting in the brain of a man because they've done studies and they found that the majority of risk takers like race car drivers, bungee jumpers, have all had toxoplasma because toxoplasma, the parasite, changes the chemical of your brain and it moves you to take greater risks because that's what it does to the rat. It, it does something in the rat and the mouse that it sees the cat and goes, oh, and doesn't move, <laughs> and the cat eats it. And so in a male, toxoplasma changes your brain chemicals to make you a risk taker. In the kingdom of God, in the examples that we have in Scripture, in every life that Paul came up against, Aquila and Priscilla, Onesimus. I mean, he's like, guys, your next task is to take the biggest risk of your life. You just moved from one country... Uh, Priscilla, I need you to move to another country and become church planters. Onesimus, hey, man, I know you're, you've just fled slavery. You've just come to Christ and you're rejoicing. Hey, you got to walk back, uh, like, th- what's it, like 3,000 miles to Colossae, and I want you to go and, and ask for forgiveness. And, you, hey, you might get killed in the process, brother, but it's worth it. That's what we're called to within the kingdom. And Paul lays this out. He says, hey, the gospel is where we stand. It it becomes our firm foundation, not the place where you find yourself, not the location where you build your home, not the job that you have. It's the, the, the gospel provides you footing in the kingdom. And then he says, hey, you are now under the leadership, the direct leadership in what is your occupation, what is your vocation, what is your life, what is your family. I am going to lead you. You listen and you obey. I got your back. And we say, no, 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 I can't do that, God. I know better than you. And then he says, hey, now I want you to change your assignment. I got a new position for you. I'm the one that determines that. I'm the one. As the Lord assigned to each. And we see that through the life of Paul and everyone he came in contact with. Get used to the fact that your assignments change. And in that change of assignment, in those great moments of risk, are the greatest benefits of sanctification. Because that desire to be autonomous, that desire to be self-dependent, it flies out the window because he drops you to your knees. As I struggled with the, the babies three months in, 
intensive care. And I would daily look to the doctor and said, when will they be ready to go back to Ecuador? And he'd like laugh at me. And over and over again repeat, 85% of their lungs are damaged. They will never be right. I don't think you understand what you're asking me. And I'd turn around and go home and walk on my driveway and fight with God. What are you doing? He was changing my assignment. Just like when he took the the church, the primitive church, and he said, hey, you don't want to move. You've got a fortress mentality. You're very comfortable taking care of yourself. I'm going to create suffering so that immigration through persecution moves the church forward. Oh, that's a great plan. Can we sit down and talk about this? And he moves them into a position where they flee for their lives. And as they go, it says they speak, they converse the gospel, and churches are started. No strategic plan. All seems very organic. And the gospel is planted over and over again. And as God moved through me and began to show me these things and began to whip me into the idea that, man, you don't know anything about the gospel. Man, you don't know anything about what it means to have God as your boss. You don't know anything about the character of God when it comes to him moving you and your family. I'm going to show you. I'm going to show you. So Paul goes on in verse 6. He says, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. Again, as, as strategic American males, we move to making plans, right? We move to the idea that we have to, to figure things out, especially those of us who are in vocational ministry, that our vocation is our occupation. We are driven by results. As a church planter, I, I have been driven by results. i got to plant a church. This church has to be be able to stand on its own feet. Somebody needs to tell me when it's autonomous and, and it's able to be its own church. And until then, I'm a failure. And as I looked back at Ecuador and I looked at the babies and I looked at my future and I thought, what else can I do? I, I don't know how to reinvent myself here, Lord. God, you, you have to take me back or I don't know where I'm going to go. I arrived in Ecuador. I was 27 years old. Do you want me to greet at Walmart? Okay, I can do that in Spanish and English now, but I don't think I can feed my family. What do you have for me? The only results and the only place that I can be truly fruitful is there. He's like, you got no clue, man. I'm changing your assignment, just like I did with the first century church. It took persecution because they were stuck in their ways, and it's taken these two babies to move you this time. I've done it before. I'm going to do it again. And because you're so stubborn and so prideful and you're not humble before me, your posture is not correct. It's going to take some work. It's going to take some struggle. But we'll get there. We'll get there. I had no clue what he was about to do. No clue. But I, I thought I could predetermine my outcomes. For me, it was about the fruit, not the root. I'd always been focusing on the fruit. And Paul says, no, it's not about the fruit. It's about the root. It's about your posture before God as he transforms your heart and puts you in a position to where he can produce fruit, not because you're something special, 
Paul says, who is Apollos? Who is Paul? No, it's not about your capabilities. It's about my work through you. And people stand back and go, holy smokes, how did that come out of you? And you stand back and go, I got no clue. That plan was not mine. Glory to God. Glory to God. Babies come out of ICU. We went into six more months of oxygen and special care, lymphedema issues, issue after issue. Wrote my resignation letter to the mission board that we were with. And I was a week away from sending it when God shifted our whole plan. And within a month, we ended up in Costa Rica. I, I, I don't know how, why, it wasn't my plan. But it was the most beautiful thing he could do. It was the best thing he could do. We didn't know anybody there. We didn't know where to arrive. All of our things were still in Ecuador. All of our furniture, all of our home belongings that we would lose over the, the coming years. We moved to Costa Rica with suitcases in our hands. And God said, brother, just take a risk. Follow me. Stand on the gospel. Move forward. Don't worry about the fruit. I'll take care of that. Just worry about the root. I'll produce what I need to produce. I had no plan. I just wanted to get back to Ecuador. And we arrived in Costa Rica, and I fought with God. And I made a plan that fell apart. And God continued to move, and he continued to show me that it's not about predetermined Fruit is not about a plan you can set in place. It's about you understanding that I'll take care of that. I will determine when things need to be produced. I will determine what it looks like when you're done. I will determine when you need to go, when you need to leave. Don't measure yourself up against predetermined ideas. I don't know where you sit today. But I know that we're all made from the same stuff. I know we struggle in the same ways. I don't know where you're at in your journey. But I do know that God has an assignment. <laughs> and that assignment is for you. It's not for the guy sitting next to you. That's the beauty of God. He shepherds and pastors in such a personal way that it blows our mind because we can't imagine that he could shepherd and pastor you in the same time my brothers in Ecuador, Costa Rica, China, but he does. And he moves the pieces in our lives and he uses the circumstances in our lives to shape and mold us so that we can be the men that he desires to use. That his first priority is to move us to a place of humility, to stand on the gospel, to recognize that he is over us and leading us and he is the only one that is capable to do that. We cannot lead ourselves. That he moves us in a position that we recognize that he's the one that gives the assignment, even though that I've spoken in hundreds of churches and told them I know what I'm doing and I really don't. That I have a strategy and a plan, but when I get on the ground, that strategy and the plan, it totally shifts and moves. And the whole time God is saying, my desire is to change the root. I want your heart. I want your sanctification. And I'm going to use everything possible to get you there. And when I throw up my arms in humility, 
It's a beautiful thing. I travel a lot, and when I come home, the first person to meet me at the door is not my wife. It's not my children. It's Leela. Leela is a little Yorkie that we bought in Ecuador so we could shove her underneath a, sh- a seat wherever we travel, <laughs> and she's easy to take with us. And what Leela does when she sees me at the door is what I desire to do before God in humility, and that is flip over and show me her belly. And in that posture, she flips over and she shows me her most intimate, exposed position and says, I'm so glad to see you. And I trust you so much that I do this. And Paul is saying that his modus operandi was, for me to live is Christ. To die is gain. Humbly I come before you and I roll over on my back. And I say, God, do with me what you need to do. Use me, even if it means I risk something great. Because the ultimate sacrifice, to die is gain. Everything else, things lost, things stolen, positions broken, recognition lost, who cares? In the paradigm of the kingdom, God is the one that determines the fruit. He's the one that determines later on the recognition and the reward. Not some group, not myself, not you, him. And in that humility, it gives me the ability to do what David did in some of the most difficult times of his life, and that is to put his head on his pillow and to sleep in peace and not worry about tomorrow. Brothers, I don't know if that makes sense. Some of you are probably facing some assignment changes. But I can tell you it's not about the plans you can create. It's not about the people you can network with. It's not about the money that's in your bank. It's about the posture of humility before God and his kingdom. It's about a recognition that you can fight God, you can turn away from God, but the beauty is he'll keep coming after you. If you get it now, it'll be a whole lot easier. Don't fight it. Roll over. Roll over. Let's pray. Father God, we just thank you so much for uh, your mercy and your grace. Thank you for the testimony of Paul. I look forward to someday sitting with him and hearing some amazing stories of struggle and a blessing. God, I pray for each one of us here this morning as we struggle, as we live in the tension of this world that's changing, and we struggle to be autonomous and self-reliant and trusting in things that we can feel, we can touch, we can see. God, take those things from us. Move us into your kingdom more each and every day in understanding and realization of who we are in you. Help us, God, to be free from ourselves and our plans and our strategies. In Christ's name I pray.